Good morning. If you got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 4. And whether you're our guest here or you're watching online, we're, we're glad you're here. And we're simply studying through the Gospel of John, one section, one chapter sometimes, sometimes a few verses at a time. We're ambitious today as we're going to grab about 42 verses. But this is a very familiar story. And with that comes excitement, but also caution. And so just make yourself at home. I hope you've got some notes here. If not, they're over there on the table. You're not going to bother me if you need to get them. Um, we're going to cover a lot of things today, and so you need to get some notes. And I hope if you're watching online, you see that, where you can get access to that as well. So Jesus was in Judea. If you remember, his, he's becoming more noticed. He's drawing more crowds, and that was both for his followers and you see we had this conversation last week with John the Baptist and his followers but what we're going to see over the next few weeks is opposition is going to begin to grow so the opposition is also noticing that Jesus is getting more people following him they don't like that so Jesus goes from Judea up to Galilee and and the text says we're going to talk about this in a minute that he must go through Samaria. Samaria is between the two. It said, the text says, we'll talk about this in a minute, that Jesus was weary. And so he, he stopped at, at Jacob's well. It was about 12 o'clock noon when he, when he stopped. And a woman from Samaria comes to the well and Jesus said, Give me something to drink or I'm thirsty. And the woman said, you're talking to me? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, and you're asking me for a drink. And Jesus then said, if you knew the water that I could give, you would ask, and I would give you this living water. And they said, "How you, you don't have anything. She said, you don't have anything to get the water with. Are you greater than Jacob, the one who dug this well? He said, this water will make you thirsty again, but the water that I give you will never, you will never thirst again. And so she said, give it to me, <laughs> so I don't have to walk to the well every day. And so he asked her a question, or give her a command, really. Go call your husband. She said, I don't have one. He said, you're right, you spoke the truth, because you've had five husbands, and the one you're living with right now is not your husband. And she said, I perceive you are a prophet. So let me ask you a question. Where's the right place to worship? Were the Jews worship or were we Samaritans worship? He said, you worship what you do not know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming. And matter of fact, it's here. When those who will worship God will worship Him in spirit and truth. Yes, the Father desires such worshipers the woman said then well the Messiah is going to come and he will explain these things to us and Jesus said the one who you were talking to is he and we know she left her jug of water and went and told those in the city and they came out and he spent two days with them and many believed but you see there's really two stories here isn't there I didn't mention the disciples you see the disciples went to get food they came up right at that pivotal moment in the gospel conversation. They didn't see her, not the way Jesus saw her. Matter of fact, Jesus is going to use this illustration. We'll get there in a minute. It, he saw a field that was ready to harvest, and he saw it was a harvest time, but they didn't even see it. This marginalized woman was his field. He took the time to not only sow in it, but to reap the harvest from it. The main idea today, Jesus Christ engages the marginalized by revealing her need, offering an eternal gift, and calling for true worshipers. Jesus Christ engages the marginalized by revealing her need, offering an eternal gift, and calling for true worshipers. I want you to see first the marginalized. What does that word mean? Why did we choose that word? Someone is marginalized. Here's a couple of definitions. 
to be treated as insignificant or peripheral. Another definition said, someone who is marginalized is relegated to an unimportant or powerless position within a society or a group. You see, the Samaritans became from the Old Testament days when the children of Israel were attacked. You remember, the Assyrians captured them in 722 to 721 B.C., and they were deported. There were a few that survived, and the ones that survived there, when that place became inhabited, intermarried with them. Not only did they intermarry, they took their religion of Yahweh and they mixed it with the foreign religions and came up with new traditions. And so when the exiles returned, they considered them half-breeds. They hated them. Jews hated them. They were half-breeds. They took the Judaism and mixed it up with other things. Samaritans then had developed their own religious traditions based off the Pentateuch. They didn't accept the rest of the Hebrew Bible as canonical. They didn't accept it. They had a different place of worship, not at Jerusalem, but Mount Gerizim. Matter of fact, do you got this? Do you have the illustration? This is just helpful. I want you to understand this today. This is important. John, I'm walking away from the camera. Stay here. I can point. I'm sorry for turning my back. Remember, there were two signs. Jesus turned the water into wine, and Jesus cleansed the temple. We said that there was a new wine, a new covenant, a new gospel. One that fulfilled. The old was gone, the new was come. And that Christ is now the center of devotion and affection. And so to illustrate that, we have two people. The respected and the marginalized. We call them the religious. I think respected really helps us understand Nicodemus was not marginalized. He was respected. He was revered. But, but this woman at the well in the story today was marginalized three times. She was a, a woman in a society that treated women like property. She was a Samaritan, a half-breed for, as far as the Jews' perspective, unclean. And she was also immoral. She had been married five times and... Mu- The thing is, she had been divorced five times, and she was living with someone that was not her husband. She was marginalized. Here's the point. We've been singing about it this morning. Here's what John wants you to get, the big story to connect chapters 2, 3, and 4. There is a universal need, and there is an eternal gift offered all. That the person who is respected and the one who is marginalized in society has no less need. They both are in need of Christ. And so they both come to the cross. This is the point. I knew a marginalized guy. Many, many of you know I ran a business with my dad for 30 years before God called me into ministry. I have no idea how many people I've hired and fired over the years. People come in, they fill out applications. I don't always talk to them. I didn't always talk to them. I talked to some of them. There was a man named Joseph. Popped in my head this week. and thought about him in years. A man named Joseph came in. A well-kept a black man. is well-spoken. Looked at everybody. Came in well-dressed for an application. My secretaries took note of him because of how, how he treated himself and how he spoke and so they said hey you Stephen you might want to talk to this guy and so I talked to him and I looked at the front page basic information flipped it over work history blank I thought he forgot you know did you forget to fill this out buddy I'll give you a few minutes and a story I'm sure he had to tell almost every time he went for a job interview or anywhere took a gulp he said well sir When I was 17 years old, I had a relationship with a girl that was younger than me. And their folks took out a warrant against me, and the DA tried me as an adult. And at 17 years old, I went to prison. And I was doing my time, but there was a group of guys in his language that kept trying to get to me. Day after day after day. He ends up taking one of them's life, and he did life for it. And so he was sitting to me with a man in his early 40s 
who from high school went to prison and spent his life there, and now he was out. No work history. This guy was marginalized. He said, you are the first person to even sit down and talk to me. So we hired him. And he worked for a few months. And then he fell away. Talk about Joseph in a minute. But see, this was the woman. She was marginalized. Look at verse 4 and 5. It says, Jesus had to pass through Samaria, verse 4. And he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Notice the word, the phrase, had to. So is this divine appointment or is this simply the most convenient direction? There's much written about this. The answer is yes. In my studies this week, I found evidence that both people would take a very long track around Samaria because they hated them so much, but that some Jews actually just grit and went through it because it was just common sense because it was so much shorter. That some Jews even traded with the Samaritans. The issue was not buying and selling and trading. The issue is they thought they were unclean. We'll see Jesus going right against this. But either way, brothers and sisters, think about this with me for a minute. If they would go across the water twice, the Jews would, because of bigotry, what do you think Jesus would do? Just what he did. <laughs> he went right through the middle of it. This was both a divine appointment and common sense working together. Listen to Isaiah 65. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation who is not called by my name. The Messiah is here. And he's about to change everything. So he went to the marginalized. This conversation was no accident. And so I want you to see not only the marginalized, I want you to see the need... Jesus used his own physical need as a bridge to the gospel. Look at verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For you see, his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Remember, the, the parentheses are for the benefit of the reader who may not understand all of these things. The need. It said, weary as he was. That word, that phrase, wearied as he was. That's a wearying, not just any kind. It is exhausted. Is it an exhaustion caused by labor, stress, or strain? Jesus was tired not only because it was the heat of the day, but because of what he had been doing and what he had been going through. This reflects Jesus' full humanity at the beginning of the story. He was tired. He was weary, so he stopped to rest. The disciples went to get him food. Jacob's well is about a half a mile south of the village. She would have had to come out of the village to come to the well. There's a lot of history here. Matter of fact, Joseph's bones, his grave, would have been only a few hundred yards north west of the well. There's a lot of history here we don't even have time to get to. It was, it was noon. It was the heat of the day. And so this woman comes and remember the clean, is cleansing. It's this unclean issue that is the core issue for the Jews. And Jesus tells her, give me something to drink. In other words, take your cup, dip it from the well, and give me a drink. Let me drink from it. You know, are you are you talking to me? There's nobody else around. Nobody else would have came out in the middle of the heat of the day to fill their jug of water. Just me. Are you talking to me? Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said, How is it you, a Jew, ask for, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Here's a parenthesis, so, because his readers may not understand the issue here. For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Why? Because they were unclean people. Half-breeds. Marginalized. You know, this is, this is important. Now listen. We have marginalized people everywhere in our fields today. 
Marginalized people know they're marginalized. And whether you agree with it or not is how they feel. They feel marginalized. I can remember when our children come home going to the drugstore and trying to find a Band-Aid that matched their skin tone. And for the first time in my life, I realized at that time, seven some years ago, that it did, they didn't exist. Never had to think about that before, you see. Marginalized people, listen, are often resistant, cautious, argumentative, skeptical, and even rude. There's, there's that tone in the conversation here that's hard to get to. That the woman was sometimes even a little bit sarcastic in her tone. Ruder than maybe she ought to be. More cautious than you think she would be. That's how you know people feel marginalized. You see, Jews would never have drank from a cup from a woman, from a Samaritan woman, but Jesus is undeterred. I love J.C. Ryle here. Let me just read a one thing he said. There is a handle to every mind, and our chief aim must be to get a hold of it. Let me read that again. That's good. If you're a teacher or you're someone who wants to share the gospel, listen. We engage people in their minds. Look what Jesus is doing. He, he brought up his own need. There is a handle to every mind, and our chief aim is to get a hold of it. Not everybody's handle looks the same. In other words, Nicodemus's handle is not the same as the woman at the well, but the gospel does not change. So look at the Samaritan's need. It is a spiritual need. Verse 10. Jesus, he immediately gives right to it. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask me, you would ask me, you would ask him, and he would have given you living water. Notice the contrast between the respected and the marginalized. It was, it was the Nicodemus that initiated the conversation with the respected. But Jesus initiates the conversation with the marginalized. In other words, the marginalized are, is probably not going to initiate a conversation with you. You're going to have to take the lead. Notice the transition of water. This conversation of waters is flowed through chapters 3 into chapters 4. It was something they both could understand. There was a well sitting there that had historical significance. And so he uses it to show her her blindness. I want you to see the universal blindness. I just don't want you to think about the woman at the well. I want you to keep Nicodemus in your mind at the same time today. Because there's a contrast going on here. And the blindness is universal. Notice how the woman, the woman said, verse 11, And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well. And drank from it as he did his sons and his livestock. See that little bit trying to pick a little bit of a conversation there. You see that over and over through the conversation. But the problem you see. Jesus understood clearly. Is that she had physical eyes that she saw with. But she could not see spiritually. She was spiritually blind. You remember Nicodemus? John chapter 3 verse 4. You must be born again. Nicodemus. He said, how can that happen? Am I supposed to get inside my mother's womb? Blind. If you look to the end, about verse 31 to 33, you see the disciples come back, and Jesus starts talking about, I got food that you don't know about. And they're like, food, food, what food? Who brought him food? We went all the way down to the drive-thru to get him food, and somebody else gave him food? Spiritual blindness. You ever had to try to have a spiritual conversation with someone who can't even think spiritually? Not easy. They're blind. But the Bible uses it. Blind, deaf, dead. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Very important verse. Need to memorize it. The natural person does not accept the things of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. There is a universal blindness and there is also a universal thirst. Look at verse 13 and 14. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks in the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Everyone, brothers and sisters, is thirsty. I am not saying they are seeking after God because Scripture says nobody seeks after God. But they are thirsty. They are made in His image. They are thirsty. Micah read a little bit of this thirsty at the beginning and where it leads. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10. Solomon, the man who had everything, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. Then this was my reward for all my toil. In other words, I worked hard, I played hard. Verse 11, Then I desired all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You cannot quench a spiritual need with something that is temporal and yet most people spend all their life trying to do it this is what the woman was doing you see this is why she had had five husbands and the one she was living with wasn't her husband but she was living with him why because she was thirsty she was trying to feel that thirst with something that she could see something that she could love something that she could touch what did Nicodemus come to Jesus for because he was thirsty. Because dead religion just don't cut it. The woman said, where do I get this water? He got her. <laughs> where do I get this water? Verse 15. Sir, give me this water so I, won't have, so I will not be thirsty. And I won't have to walk that half a mile to get the water. You see, he had to go here personal need is due to personal sin the only way Jesus could offer her the gift was to show her her need and to show her, her need he must show her her sin this is simply the gospel truth if you do not show people's, people their sin you have not really given them the gospel they won't see their need Jesus came personally to save personally. Jesus did not die on the cross for a potential. He died for people. And sin is not merely lying, stealing, or cussing. Sin is seeking to be satisfied by anything but God. That is sin. That is heinous. And that is worthy of eternal wrath. And all people need to see it. The most respected to the most marginalized. This, brothers and sisters, is our universal problem. We are blind we have a thirst, but we seek to satisfy it in something we can see. And so what does he tell her? Give me something to drink. Give me this drink you're talking about. What did he, what did he say? Verse 16. Go call your husband. <laughs> this is how he gets to it. Now was he being mean there? No. This is the greatest show of love, of gospel love that you see. He shows her her need. You see, her life was characterized by unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness in one marriage after another, and yet she's still going back to the same well. He uncovers her sin to offer the gift. The gift. We see the gift in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is to say you give me a drink, you would ask him. He would give you living water. Gift. What is that gift? A lot written about that, actually. Remember I said people like to have conversations about everything. Is the gift grace? Is the gift the Holy Spirit? Is the gift the gospel? Is the gift Christ himself? What is the gift? Yes. <laughs> Sometimes we can get pulled into futile argue, arguments. The salvation, the gift of God is like a diamond with many facets. And no matter which facet you look at, the person and the work of Christ, the triune God, is right in the middle of that diamond and it is Him we seek to see. The gift of God is grace. You see, grace is anything that belongs to God that He desires to give. That's why they call it grace and you don't have to pay it back. That's why it's grace. 
It is the Savior himself. We're going to see that in a minute. But brothers and sisters, think about the context. That's why I wanted to put that on the screen. The gift of God is the new wine, and it is the new temple. It is the new wine. The old wasn't sufficient to save the gospel of Jesus Christ, his person, his work, his life, death, and resurrection. It's better than the old. It's the new wine in Christ himself. We're going to see that in a minute. What is the nature of this living water, this gift of God? Look at verse 14. Whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The first thing I want you to see about the nature of this gift is that is it is internal. You see it? Everything we need right here to understand the nature of the gift is right here in verse 14. It is internal. And it is not only internal, it is internally cleansing. So if you're taking notes, in this gift is in him. It is the living water in him. It is internally cleansing. You remember the issue is, is the Jews thought they were unclean. And so he first story he told about someone who needed to be cleansed was who? A Jew. The most respected. And here he has the most marginalized. The one who somebody would not drink from a cup, but Jesus would. Really important passage. If you don't know what you need to know, and it needs a pop in your head every time someone brings up the gospel, every time a preacher says new covenant, you need to think about it. Ezekiel 36 and verse 25. This is why water is such a big deal. This is the imagery and the symbolism is powerful in Scripture. Ezekiel 36 and verse 25 Listen to the gift of God. Listen to the new wine. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be cleansed from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. The nature of this gift first is that it is internally cleansing and it is, listen, it is eternally satisfying. It is internally cleansing and it is eternally satisfying. Jacob's well is the illustration that's there before him. And Jacob's well wasn't merely a dug well. It was fed by an underground spring. So the water was always fresh. It's reliable even to this day. Look at verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Why? Because they will be always drinking and always being satisfied. The nature of this gift is that it cleanses and keeps on cleansing. The nature of this gift is that it satisfies and keeps on satisfying. This is the choice, you see, that Nicodemus had to make and that the woman at the well had to make between that which is temporal, that relationship that she currently had, and that which is eternal, that which is internal, Jewish people had the same choice and the same tendency. Jeremiah in chapter 2. Notice the water illustration again. Verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewn out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's the two realities, you see. There's only two. Remember we said to believe or to not believe? To believe and obey? Or to say you believe and not obey is unbelief. There's only two. There's only two places. Yourself or the God who created the world through Jesus Christ, His Son. It's the only two ways. I like this one program. Christina don't like it. I shouldn't be alive. 
Anybody ever watched that program? I've only watched all the episodes, so I can't watch it anymore. But basically, it's a program about people who've got themselves in a mess of trouble. Usually, it's on the ocean, in the desert, or on a mountain somewhere, right? And usually, some dude who had no business going up that mountain or in that, you know, but every once in a while, it'll be somebody that just, just happened, you know? They're, and I, I love the, I don't love the one. The ones that are the most impactful to me about the message this week was these people who get on the sea. Scares me to death just to think about it. Right on a raft or something, two or three people in the middle of the ocean. This is the image today. Have you ever heard a thing, water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink? So what he's not offering here, and we don't do it when we present the gospel, is like a waitress who comes up to you at the restaurant and they say, so, sir or ma'am, can I take your order? Let me get you something to drink. Would you like Coke, uh, sweet tea, or water? That's why you hear it, isn't it? Man, I really would like sweet tea. But you know, I really all drink water right that's not what we're talking about today and i'm sorry and if that's christianity today all i can tell you is to repent and put your faith in jesus christ this is not this is you on the raft brothers and sisters and water water everywhere and not a drop to drink and yet the people on the raft are doing what drinking the water it looks like it would satisfy It's even wet when we put it in our mouth. But what happens to those who drink the water? They die. (laughs) C.S. Lewis in his screw tape letter, if you've not washed it or read it, you, you should. said, sin is an increasing craving for an ever diminishing pleasure. An increasing craving for an ever diminishing pleasure. We know this be it pornography or any kind of addiction, this is the way it works. It produces an increase in craving, but the pleasure that it gives is ever-diminishing. So you can watch that pop-up ad on YouTube of that, of that soft porn trying to lure you in, and it will lead you to pedophilia every day and twice on the weekend. And if you don't think it will, you're closer than you think you are to it. Addiction's the same way, isn't it? You've got to take more and more to get the same thing. Listen to me. That's why he started with the religious man. Because dead religion could be the same thing. It can simply be, as Karl Marx said, an opiate. This formal things that we go through. Religion itself can become an idol. Jesus engages somebody today that nobody else would have. His disciples sure wouldn't have. He gave this woman, this marginalized woman, listen, the clearest verbal testimony of who he was is anywhere in the New Testament. Look with me at, at verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, Lord, said, I know the Messiah is coming. Now, parentheses for the reader. He is called, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus engages the marginalized. He reveals her need in order to offer her the gift of God that is both internally cleansing and eternally satisfying. I want you to see this today. I want you to see the response. And this is not what you think I'm going to talk about. This is not your response. I want you to receive the response of the gift Can I say it this way? The effective nature, the effectual nature of that gift. In other words, if this gift is a gift from God, what's this going to produce in you and you and me? What is he really offering her? What is this gift going to... Can we see this in the text? I think we can. Look at verse 19. The woman said, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say... That in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. I simply want you to see today, the nature of this gift is seen in what it produces in the one who is given the gift. 
The nature of the gift of God is seen in the one who is given the gift. The Father seeks what? He seeks two things. The gift of God produces two things in your life and mine and the woman at the well. True worshipers and faithful laborers. True worshipers and faithful laborers. Prophet, she said. Just tell me the best place to worship on Sunday. You know, should I go to this denomination or that? Should I go to the first Baptist or the second Baptist? Which one? Which is best? He gives her a little, I'm not going to get into that. Growth group, if you want to talk about that, you can. He gives her a little come to Jesus meeting with, between the Jews and where the gospel came to first. And we'd do well to heed that. But the point is, is that the Father is seeking true worshipers. This is what the gift is going to produce, you see. Verse 23, the hour is coming and it's now here. When the true worshipers, you see it, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Oh, do not forget the sign. Jesus is the temple. He's the temple. It's just what John's teaching us. The hour is coming. Christina read from Ephesians 2. Verse 14 said, Jesus came. So now there is no longer where the Jews worship in the court of the Gentiles. It's coming where he is going to knock that wall down. And both Jew and Gentile see their, their universal need and come to the gift of God. And they become a one person, a one family under the banner of the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no other hope for this nation, nor this country, nor King's Mountain than the cross of Jesus Christ. It is that we bring to bear. It is that the church can bring to bear. And it's what we must bring to bear. For it is what Christ brought to bear in this woman's life true worship the utter passing away of the Jewish system it was not sufficient the prophet Malachi in chapter 1 verse 11 said there was coming a day that in every place incense shall be offered to my name quote our church was about to be founded whose members would find access to the father everywhere and would need no temple service, no priests, or sacrifices, or altars in order to approach God. But what they must do, what we must do, is worship Him the way He commands to be worshipped. Verse 24, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. All this so much today, I was telling Ricky here, you can only, we can only scratch the surface today. Remember the diamond facets. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, you just got to be content and realize you ain't seen everything in that one facet yet or you start look, wanting to look at the other one. I want you to see spirit. We must worship in the spirit. What does that mean? Turn with me to Matthew 5. Brothers and sisters, what he was getting to her who was seeking to argue about which mountain they should worship on is to say that true worshipers are characterized by their spiritual longing. Their spiritual longing. Matthew 5 verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Remember when we went through Matthew, we said you should read it this way, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they and they only should be satisfied. So let me ask you a question. What comes before satisfaction? Longing. It is those who long to be satisfied in Christ alone, in the gospel alone, for His glory alone, that we'll be satisfied and nobody else will. This, the external part of worship is of no value in compared to the internal aspect of worship that must begin in the personal lives of you and me before we get here and as we go. Back to the ocean. 
You're on the raft, right? We've said we drink the water. What happens? Before you die, you get more thirsty, don't you? More thirsty. Drink more water. Only to what happen? It kills you. So listen today. In Christ in you, the hope of glory is working and satisfying. It is producing in you a greater thirst, a greater hunger for more of what you just did. And unlike the world, it will not kill you. Unlike the world, this spiritual longing that causes spiritual worship will produce what Jesus calls the abundant life. The abundant life is the cleansed life. The abundant life is the forgiven life. The abundant life is the satisfied life. It is not the perfect life. It is not the easy life. It is not the, what the prosperity preachers call the blessed life. It is the forgiven, cleansed, and satisfied in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And it is that gospel we can take to the persecuted countries or we can take it to the passive countries like ours. It is the only hope, Christ in you. We only have to give what is satisfying us today. It is that we bring to worship with us. It is that you're going to bring to work with you, spirit, to worship Him in spirit this morning. In short, is your heart labor. It's your heart service. It's the labor. You see, said this today as we prayed, the worship team had to do some work before they dare stand up and lead worship to you. And listen, if, they are not, if they're not going to do the heart work, they do not need to stand up in here and lead worship. We ask this of, our, of anyone in leadership. We dare not lower the bar. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit with a spiritual longing, but also a longing truth, a truth longing. This is pointing not to somewhere that it's not. It's not focused on what she wanted him to focus on. Outward formalism, entrenched traditions. Which tradition is right? Ours or theirs? And he's not talking specifically about longing for truth. Look at the text. It's longing in truth. In truth. This is worship in truth. We worship. I started singing an old hymn today as I, was, as I was going through the message again. It's the name. We've gathered here today in the name. The name of Jesus Christ. We labor. We love. We live. We buy. We sell. We do it all in the name. We don't have access to God. We have no right to come into the presence of God except through the name of Jesus Christ. We worship in truth. We worship the fact that the only way we have any reason, any hope to enter into the access, to hear God hear our prayers, is through the shed blood and the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. He's our truth. We worship in truth. We worship in the name. We have access to God through Christ alone. And that means, brothers and sisters, what he's trying to teach her, better to be in the woods in a tent with three or four people doing the heart labor right, worshiping him in the name, than to have a cathedral that puts people in awe and it's full of people worshiping themselves with their dead traditions. That's what he's teaching them the woman at the well today. The day is coming and it's here because the temple is here and the most important thing is not your building nor your traditions, but me. I am what's important. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's all we know. It's the truth we long for. It's what we worship in. Worship, you see, brothers and sisters, is eternal. It's eternal. Everything, almost everything you're experiencing now will pass away. But what will not pass away is our worship. Our worship is eternal. It is your chief end to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. And glorifying God and enjoying God are not mutually exclusive. They're one thing. I'm out of time. I'm only on faithful labors. True worshipers, faithful labors. Let me just say this. Conversations getting somewhere, cutting to this point, the point, and then what happens? The disciples come back. You remember, the disciples come back. Here's what they did: they went through the drive-through at Taco Bell, right? The tacos were hot. Nobody won't, likes to eat a cold taco. 
And, and, and so they, they got their bag in their hand. They show up and they get about 50 feet away and they look over there and say, you see who he's talking to? I see it. She's a woman. That's a Samaritan woman. You're going to say something? I ain't saying nothing. You're going to say something? I'm not saying nothing. And so they just go up to Jesus and say, hey, hey, let's take 10 minutes and let's eat it while it's hot. You see, what this produces, the gift of God, is faithful laborers. Disciples at this point are still rather spiritually blind. They didn't see the field. Listen, this is important. Jesus could not have been any happier than he was at the well, spending his life loving that woman with the gospel. It's why he was here. Listen, that's why you're here. You should not be any happier than having coffee with a broken person, giving them the only hope they have, Jesus Christ. Do you have a view of people that is keeping you from seeing the people in your field? Because listen, you don't pick your field, God does. No more than we pick how we worship Him. God tells us how we worship Him in spirit and in truth. Our, the irony of this story is that the Samaritans see. The woman sees. How do we know she sees? She leaves her water pot and she goes back and begins to tell people, Come see. That's our, word, that's our phrase in John. Come and see. There's some symbolism going on here with leaving that water pot. Same kind of words here as when Jesus turned the water into wine. She left it. She went and told the people in the village. Imagine what they thought of her given how many marriages she's probably already broken up. But they come and see and what happens. Jesus spends two days and they believe. Disciples don't see. The Samaritans do see. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Listen, no matter who you are, the new has come. So what today? How are you responding to the gift of God in Jesus Christ? There, you're either responding in spiritual apathy or spiritual longing. I love that word longing, but I, I'm, I always look for better words. Eagerness earnestness, fervor, urgency. See, longing always leads to laboring. It is no pleasure, pleasure, no problem to work after that which you're getting pleasure in. Longing, spiritual longing always leads to faithful laboring. Let's go back to Joseph. Remember Joseph? The guy I hired. He worked with us about I'm not sure probably about three months. And one day he just didn't show back up. It happens <laughs> over and over again. We just mark it down as he's left with work available and we move on. And I don't know when it was. I was watching the news one day and a missing person pops up. Whose picture was it? Joseph's. That's a sobering moment. It's happened more than once. Missing persons don't know what happened to Joseph. What do I know? I had three months. Some of you have less time than that. I had three months. Here's my question. I we have those moments of clarity. Did I see him as Christ sees him? Did I label him a victim in need of a token? Did I label him a criminal in need of avoiding? Or do I label him a soul in need of Christ? Brothers and sisters, that moment determines what kind of worshiper you are. Not this one. But that moment. That moment brings us together with a spiritual longing and an eternal satisfying that I do nothing perfectly but I look back on Joseph and I said I did not waste those three months with him and it was not wasted brothers and sisters 
God has put people in your field. Don't be a blind disciple, but be Christ today. You are not more busy than Jesus is, or that he was. Slow down. See the people in your field. Jesus wants to offer them eternal life. And not only that will cleanse them of whatever they have done and keep on cleansing, but it will satisfy them and keep on satisfying into eternity. And they'll see it by how he's satisfying you. And so, brothers and sisters, Hebrews 10 says this, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We are going to pray. And then as we worship, we are going to respond in worship through our voices, through our prayers, through our giving. The baskets are on the back and through celebrating communion together. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm sorry that I've only scratched the surface of this beautiful text. Oh God, may we realize the lifetime of joy from loving and reading and enjoying your word. For it challenges us. At the same time, it satisfies us. And so, Lord, I pray that your word, and I know I can pray this in faith, that your word will do its work in me and in those that are hearing, be it online or here in the seats today. And so, Lord, now we long, we long to worship you. We long, God, to give you the praise that you deserve. We long to remember your son this morning. That's why we have communion every week. Because we dare not let ourselves forget the great price that your son paid for our redemption, for our adoption, for our forgiveness, for our joy. And so God, today as we sing to you, as we give to your church for its care, as we come to the tables, Lord, we remember together your son's body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. And it is that, and that alone, that gives us the access to come to you right now in prayer and gives us the confidence to stand with our voices now and know you will not only hear it, you will gladly receive it. And so, God, whether our voices sound little or big or good or bad, may we lift it now for the praise of your glorious grace. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who is for us, with us, in us, and will come one day to receive us. God's people said, Amen.